Uh, so go ahead and turn. Daniel chapter 8 is where we're at tonight. Daniel chapter 8. And uh, similar to last week, also different from last week. So we were joking beforehand, you know, what, what's the difference between chapter 7 and chapter 8? Well, you have two less animals you have to worry about. Um, so that's, that's a helpful thing. But so we're going we're gonna to look at some visions that Daniel has. And uh, like I said, very similar to chapter 7, but there are some differences and we'll look at all those. So. Uh, start off just with a little bit of an outline, and I think you have this on your half sheets on the front. So it breaks, it's almost identical to last week. Last week it was one to four, 7, 1 to 14 was the vision, and then the second section was 15 to 28 in chapter 7. There's one less verse this time. Uh, so very similar, where you have Daniel recording the reception of this vision, And we get to walk through all those lovely things up there. And then uh, we get the interpretation of it. And uh, what's unique here is we actually have some interaction with a a named angel. Uh, And so we'll get into Daniel and his interaction with Gabriel and what he learns about the vision. So uh, we'll just go ahead and jump right on in. So uh, if we could have a couple volunteers to read. So chapter 8. 1 through 14, maybe we'll do 1 through 6 and then 7 through 14. Actually, that math doesn't check out. 1 through 7 maybe, and then 8 through 14. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Okay, so there's a lot of detail going on in here. And uh, we're going to try our best to quickly progress through some things. So first here, um, notice there's... a the location that we mention in verses 1 and 2, there's a couple of cross-references to it that I think are pretty interesting. So uh, Nehemiah chapter 1 and Esther chapter 1, which are also books talking about things happening during this exile. And uh, what's interesting is uh, especially mentioning of that uh, city. Uh, Shushan in the New King James, uh, in other places it's uh, it could just be Shush or Sush. Uh, but that city of, in Persia becomes pretty important and uh, becomes, depending on where you read or study, either like a, a capital city, maybe not like the capital city, but like a holy city for Persia. And what's really interesting is just to note again when this is being written. So the third year of Belshazzar is like 555. So this is years before the Medes and the Persians have even conquered Babylon. So we have that in Daniel 5, right? Where there's the party that's happening. Belshazzar is having this huge party, and the Medes and Persians come and conquer Babylon that night. So what we're referring to here is we're referring to an important Persian city in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. And what we observe happening at this important city would have been kind of like almost unfathomable to these people because who's, who are the Medes and the Persians, you know, at this point? But it's interesting that from a prediction of where something is going to happen, uh, we, we learn more from God's prediction than what they would have known at the time, that this city would become very prominent 
And it's interesting that when you get to Esther, that this is the city where the king is. Uh, I can't remember how to pronounce his name. Hashuerus, maybe? Uh, but this is the city where he's at, the, the Persian king. And then this is Nehemiah is interacting with the same city. And we have these predictions like years before those things. You know, it's just interesting. And uh, certainly, so just noting that location, we didn't have that really in chapter 7, uh, like a very specific location. And that's, I think, going to become more important as we get into what the vision is actually about. So that's where we get to number two here, or bullet number two. Just walk through some of the characters that are in this chapter and maybe think through what they are. And uh, we're going to get to this in the second half too, but just maybe, what are we looking at? So in this specific location of this vision, Daniel sees these things. So he sees a ram, and you can look again, it's verses three and four. And he lifts his eyes and, and seeing there, standing beside the river, a ram with two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. If, uh, you know, it's November in Iowa, if we're talking about white-tailed deer, we would call that an atypical white-tailed deer. One rack is different than the other. Um, but so he sees a, a ram, and the two horns are both big, but one's a little bigger than the other. And it's very clear who we're talking about. It specifically tells us later in the chapter, this is the Medes and the Persians, or their kingdom, and probably the horns size uh, signify that one half of that's probably a little more powerful than the other of the Medes and the Persians. So he sees this ram with two horns. And uh, when you get into verse 4 and the directions that are being shared, it's probably a reference to the geography of where the Medo-Persian Empire is extending and conquering. And if I was a really good teacher, I would have a map to show you that. But I don't. So <laughs> we'll just keep moving. So from there, um, the goat, we get to the goat, verse 5, and uh, we see the goat and the ram interacting through the rest of the section. So what does he see? Verse 5, suddenly a male goat came from the west, and once we understand who the goat is, that makes sense, why it's coming from the west. But So from the west, here comes this goat, and instead of two horns, he's got one horn. So it's a unicorn. It's not a unicorn. It's a goat. So not to get your mythical beasts mixed up. Uh, so we have a goat with one horn. And it's interesting how he describes that horn is this notable or conspicuous horn. We've already had this in chapter 7 where the horns start to take on the character of certain leaders. And so we have the little horn from the last chapter. And so that was referring mostly to this Antichrist that would rise in the tribulation. And so that's where we get uh, tricky here because we see up on our sheet here, not to get ahead of ourselves, or on the PowerPoint, uh, the little horn. He's mentioned again. But most people don't start with little horn equaling Antichrist in chapter 8. And so we'll get into that in a moment. So there's this goat with one notable horn. And then uh, as the ram and the goat fight, uh, so looking down at uh, verses 6 and 7, the goat conquers the ram. And then looking again at verse 8, we get into all of these discussions of these horns. So, therefore, the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. So the one horn on the goat is broken, and then four come up 
And this is very similar to last chapter, right? Where there's ten, and then you get rid of three, and uh, there's seven. We had a discussion about this in the church van last week, that if you count the little horn, there's actually eight, but ten minus three is still seven. Um, so not to, you know, come on in the church van. It's, it's wild, the college church van. Those are the discussions we have all the time. Um, so there's four that kind of come up in the place of the one. And then, so we'll just keep going. Uh, and out of them, verse 9, so out of the four came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and towards the glorious land. And then kind of the rest of that section through verse 12, and it, referring to that last little horn, and you see it described, it grew up to the host of heaven, cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He, referring to that little horn still, even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, And by him, the little horn, by the little horn, the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary, and uh, that's probably referring to the prince, so not the little horn, the place of the prince sanctuary is cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the little horn to oppose the daily sacrifices and the little horn, he cast truth down to the ground. He did all of this and prospered. Uh, So, we had some mention of some other things here. So, just trying to imagine what's going on. Ram with two horns, goat with one horn. They fight. Goat wins. One horn goes away. And you've got four horns. But then out of the four, this little one comes. So, technically five or six if you're tracking all of them. And then you get to this discussion of the host and stars or host slash stars, in verse uh, 10. And so who, what are we talking about here? Um, host could be just a reference to, like, army or, like, people of an army, in a sense. There's other places in Scripture where these hosts, it does refer to, like, heavenly bodies or, so, like, angels. Um, and if you're, like, if your Bible's like mine... In uh, verse 10, there's a cross-reference maybe to Revelation 12 where you have a beast there bringing down some hosts from heaven, like a third of the stars or the host of heaven. And so like when we start talking about hosts and stars, what are we talking about here? Uh, Are we talking about angels? Are we talking about some other thing? Um, Most people would look at host here because of the way that they interpret what the little horn is, they would think that the host is referring to Jewish people of a specific time period. But so we don't know that yet. (laughs) So just as you're picturing it, host, stars, there's these, uh, yeah, we'll just go with stars. And they are um, being interacted with, cast down in verse 10 by this little horn. And then uh, we get mention of this prince in verse 11, and it's the prince of the host. And so, you know, is this like the prince of the angels? Is it the prince of Jewish people, which would be like the Messiah? Uh, most people would take it as the latter. It's like the prince of the, of the Jewish people, so the Messiah, the prince of the sanctuary, the people, the person the people are worshiping. 
And then we get to verses 13 and 14 with the last group of characters, the holy ones. Uh, So verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So, what those last holy ones likely are, are angels. Okay, so deep breaths. <laughs> Who's confused yet? <laughs> uh, you know, if you're like me, I stared at this for quite a while. I'm like, man, okay, how are we going to work through this? So, um, how we would look at this, um, well, maybe let's wait. Let's wait one moment. Let's just get through our bullets here. Uh, so, is there any questions? I saw your hand, Carrie. No. Okay, it wasn't maybe a little earlier now? Okay. Any, any questions about those characters? And trying to just focus on what is being described in Daniel's vision. This is what he sees. We're gonna, the second half of the chapter is going to get into a little bit more detail to help us identify what some of these things are. Um, but so just, you know, like I said, there's only two animals tonight. Super simple, right? A ram and a goat, and uh, some horns, and some hosts, and stars, and the prince, and the hoyles. Okay, so uh, there's, there's another phrase that we want to note here. Uh, it's in verse 12. It's also in verse 13 and 23. It's the idea of this transgression that's happening. So verse 12, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn, and that's, so I'm reading in New King James, if you're reading in ESV, it's probably worded a little bit differently. And so uh, this implication of an army being given to this little horn because of something, because of transgression. Um, it comes up again in verse 13, this transgression of desolation. That At least that word transgression comes up. And then uh, just glance down at 23 again. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors, this is New King James, and uh, that is a substantival participle for any of you English fans out there. Uh, So a verbal form, but it's being used as a noun. So the ones who are transgressing, so it's being used like a noun, not not referencing to the transgression specifically, but that there are people doing a thing. And that's going to be interesting when we try to walk through this later. Um, So there's a connection with this little horn and this transgression that's happening. And then, um, what are the 2300 days? So whenever we get into a prophecy, like verse 14, there's this really interesting number thrown out, right? So one angel, one holy one's talking to another one. How long is this going to be? 2300 days. And you're like, okay, so what's that referring to, right? And if I've got you thoroughly confused at this point, now we can move to the next section. Um, So this is just what Daniel is seeing. So he sees the ram, he sees the goat, they fight, little horn, or I guess we'll call it the little horn. The notable horn breaks off, four more horns come up, and then from the four, there's another one, this little horn, and then there's this kind of interaction with that last little horn with these hosts or stars 
and then these angels that are there are watching this happen too. And they're like, how long is this going to take place? You know, how, how long is it where all this stuff is happening? And they say, 2,300 days. So if you can imagine that in your mind, that's what Daniel saw. Okay, now let's move to the second half, where hopefully we undo the confusion that I have wrought. Okay, uh, does anyone want to read 15 through uh, 19, 15 through 20, 15 through 20? Amy, okay, thank you, 15 through 20. And then I saw a hand over here. Yeah, okay, you're going to read 21 through 27. So if all you take from this tonight, just latch on to verse 27. We're going to be sick for days after this. We'll finally get back to the king's business. We're astonished, but we don't understand. That's, that's our theme verse for the night. Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully not. Okay, so uh, let's walk through this second section. So 15 through 19, after, um, after he sees it, an angel comes to him, and he's going to help explain it. And so uh, I thought about putting some uh, of the Hebrew in here again to like, show you how it fits together. So this is Gabriel. We've seen him, and we, we haven't seen him yet at this point chronologically. We will see him in the Gospels as he announces the birth, and, uh, or he comes to Mary. And so a very familiar angel to us. And we just got Christmas on the brain today. There you go. So, um, so what's interesting about Gabriel's name is it's just, uh, so Hebrew, every word has three root letters. And so the three root letters of his name are G, B, and R. And that word just means mighty man, Gabor. And then the last two letters, like L, that's God's name. So if you just put it together, who is this? It's the mighty one of God or the mighty man of God is what his name means. And uh, so uh, interesting to always think that through. Um, so Gabriel comes and, uh, we see again, Daniel in kind of a position of weakness here. Uh, we noted this in chapter seven, he's just a normal guy, right? And so he's seen the vision, he's seeking meaning. And then suddenly he's, he's got Gabriel there. He came near to me in verse 17. I was afraid and fell on my face. And he said, understand son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Uh, and as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep uh, with my face to the ground, and he touched me and stood me upright. So it's interesting, actually, is that, you know, so we know that he's asleep. So pretty much what we all have seen in the first 15 verses is dream. But then now the angel wakes him up to show him or explain the rest of it. So uh, interesting that, you know, he's sleeping through all of this. So when Gabriel starts explaining in verse 20, we are very thankful that he gives us direct meaning. So verse 20, there's no other way to understand it. So, the ram which you saw, having the two horns, the kings of Medes and Persians. Very simple. So if you go to the very bottom of your sheet, you see the chart where we've had reference to the Medes and the Persians before. So in Daniel chapter 2 and the big statue, you have the chest of arms and silver. Chapter 7, we had the bear, and now we have the ram. It's all referring to this kingdom of the Medes and Persians, which again, has not yet, when Daniel is seeing this, has not conquered Babylon. 
That's still coming. So he's predicting this nation that will come and defeat Babylon. Okay, but that's not really what we're seeing because it's not the second animal is not Babylon. Uh, we have uh, the lion in chapter seven referring to Babylon. Here we have the male goat, and that refers to Greece. So, verse twenty-one again, direct meaning. And the male goat, Greece. So I know what you're all thinking. Well, maybe you're not thinking it, but maybe you will when I tell you what I think you're thinking. Does it actually say Greece? You know, so if you start thinking about here we are, 555 in exile in Babylon, and for most of Daniel, they've been speaking Aramaic. This chapter is written in Hebrew. We've gone back to Hebrew. But so when you start talking about Greece, you start instantly like, well, that's a completely different thing, right? Far away, different language. So like, how would they even have had a word to say Greece, right? And uh, so the word actually isn't, it's not a transliteration. There's not like Hebrew and it's pronounced Greece. Uh, the word is probably pronounced something like Javan or something like that. And it actually refers to, it's used in the Old Testament a couple of times, but it's the name of a descendant who most people think settled, you know, way back in Genesis would have gone out to the west and settled that region. And so that's what the word is actually there. It's probably the name of a descendant that settled the area that would be known as Greece, or at least out to the west. So that's where Greece is coming from. Hindsight's twenty twenty, though, so that we can speculate as to the name that's being used and referring to this region where Greece is located. We very clearly know that this is exactly what happened in history. And so as we continue, verse 20, still in 21, the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And if you pick up a commentary on Daniel, what you're going to hear, which I think is correct, is this is Alex the Great, the young Greek ruler who just sweeps east and just conquers this huge realm of territory. And uh, I don't remember... uh, So, bullet number three here. Note on the timing. So it would be 336 B.C., so 200 years later than when Daniel was seeing this, that Alexander the Great would come on into the Persian Empire and conquer a place called Shushan, that we just happen to know is where Daniel saw this vision of the goat and the ram fighting. That is, Alexander the Great in 336 would come and conquer Persia. And so we know that there's this great king that comes and conquers the Medes and the Persians. So we continue into uh, verse 22. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place... Four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. What we also know of Alexander the Great is that he died very young, became very prominent very quickly, and then died. And you can pick up pretty much any Western Civ textbook, and they'll talk about this. His kingdom is divided into four sections. Some of his commanders get rule over the different portions of his region. And uh, so history confirms that this is happening. That's really not the tricky part of, of Daniel 8. Most commentaries, if you, if you just go and Google this right now, what's Daniel 8 about? 
it'll follow this exact track record. And the way I know that is because I've done it. I'm like, what would happen if I just, what's Daniel 8 talking about? And boom, you're going to find, oh yeah, it's the Medes and the Persians, and then here's Alexander the Great coming, and then it's divided up into these four commanders, and then, you know, they're going to tell you all that history. What gets really tricky is when we get to this last little horn. And what's tricky about it is the connection with chapter 7. Is the little horn in chapter 8 the same little horn that we were talking about in chapter 7? And that's where we kind of have to... Bible study. We're getting into the, the weeds tonight. So, verse 23, as we start to talk about this last king, and in the latter time of their kingdom which would be a reference to the four in verse 22. When the transgressors have reached their fullness, so at the latter time of these Greek generals, we have transgressors doing things. Then a king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes, so we learn about his character, that he's a a wicked king, His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. So if you remember back in section one, we're talking about the hosts and the stars. Like, are these angels? And what happened to them in verse 10? That little horn that grows out of the four starts, you know, throwing down these hosts and trampling them. And because of our biblical knowledge, if we know how that word host is used other places, we instantly are like, oh, angels, right? And in fact, my Bible cross-references Revelation 12, where I think that's what is being talked about in Revelation 12. When Gabriel starts explaining this, it's not angels. It's like the people. So again, the holy people, which we would, in Daniel, probably be referring to Jewish people. This is not Jewish people at the time he's writing it. This is Jewish people a couple hundred years from now. After the ram and the goat have done their thing, after the prominent horn, Alexander the Great, has died, after his four generals have divided up the Greek Empire, after that, we have a king that rises up and really persecutes the Jewish people. And uh, do we have someone in history that fits this bill? That's where I'll go back to this slide. Actually, when we're talking about these, uh, I'll do it this way, the 2300 days, does anybody know what December 25th, 165 B.C. is? It's a unique festival of the Jewish people. It is mentioned in the Gospels. Hanukkah. And what are they celebrating Hanukkah, at Hanukkah? That is the day that the Maccabeans took back the... Now, just look down at verse 14. It's when the Maccabeans and their revolt retook the sanctuary in Jerusalem from under the control of Antiochus Epiphanes, which was a ruler that came out of the Seleucid IV of the Greek Empire. 
And he was given rule over Israel in that domain. And he was very wicked to the Jewish people. And on that day, Hanukkah is a celebration of they got the sanctuary back. That's why they celebrate it. That's why the Jewish people celebrated that every year. Um, so we see this little horn doing things to the Jewish people. Uh, verse 23 again. When the transgressors have reached their fullness. Now what's interesting here is who are the transgressors? <laughs> That's also the Jewish people. So we know that God uses rulers uh, sovereignly to do a work in his people. And the fact that Daniel is writing this in exile in Babylon is an example of that. That when his people profane the covenant, he allows them to be conquered. And what would be true of the intertestamental period, so in this period of the Maccabeans, uh, you know, anywhere from the 1, 2, 3, 400 B.C. era, when the Jewish people came back from exile, they weren't super great. There's a faithful remnant that he agrees with me. Praise the Lord, brother. So, <laughs> you know, that's one of the unique, fun things when you get to speak is when kids get really engaged in your lesson. And it's like, I know, I, I agree with you, man. He's just excited. He loves the Word of God. So uh, when the Jewish people came back from exile... They had a short time of faithfulness, but just like we've seen ever since the judges, the Jewish people are not super faithful. And so I think what you see here is towards the end of this time period of these four kings in verse 23, God allows a wicked king, wicked ruler, as a way to purge his people. And uh, I think... Again, if you, if you pull out a commentary that walks through this, most commentaries are going to agree that we are referring to this Greek ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes. So when we, we're talking about this 2,300 days, which you can't see that over here, uh, if you count 2,300 days back from Hanukkah, you get into this 171 era, and there's a lot of really unique history of what's going on with the Jewish people in that year that would have incited Antiochus Epiphanes to really clamp down. And uh, we just don't have time for it. But that is most likely what the little horn here is referring to. is not like chapter 7, the Antichrist in the tribulation. It's most likely referring to an earthly, wicked king. However, there are some stunning correlations between what this guy's doing and what we know will also happen from the other little horn uh, in, in the tribulation with the Antichrist. So a lot of people do draw some ties there. But as we talked about last week, when we see a prophecy, we have to anticipate the fulfillment literally. And as we start looking at 20 and 21 and 22, we've got everyone else as a literal earthly king here in this vision. And we have at least a great historical precedent to understanding what 23 and 24 are speaking to. So I, I would tend to lean that way, that all of these horns in chapter 8 are referring to specific earthly rulers 
that would be coming in, in the history that has not yet unfolded. So we have the king, which is the Medes and the Persians, the, the ram. We have the goat, which would be Alexander the Great. And then you have his four commanders, and then you have the last one here, Antiochus Epiphanes, which I'm realizing now, uh, <laughs> you know, try to spell Antiochus Epiphanes, and I didn't put him up on the screen. Uh, I should have wrote that out for you. Um, so that's, that's how we would probably walk through just what is happening here. So a couple more bullets. Uh, just notice, uh, and we noted this in chapter 7, that 23 through 26 is set off, just like chapter 7 was, right? This is a poetic section. And so when you start getting into poetry, there's different ways things are emphasized. And um, we already mentioned that the character of the king is highlighted, that this is a particularly wicked king. And that is true. We know historically that Antiochus Epiphanes probably had up to 100,000 or more Jewish people killed in that little time frame of like 170-ish B.C. So he did not like the Jewish people. Um, So the poem accentuates his wickedness. But if you walk down through there, and it actually starts in kind of verse 20, but there's this emphasis on power and greatness again. Um, and again, I probably should have listed these out, but if you just read down through it, so the little horn becomes great, the large horn, and then uh, as for the broken horn, the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms will arise, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, there will be a king that rises up, verse 24, his power will be mighty, but not with his own power. There's this repetition of this power idea. Um, and this is a really Hebrew word, really easy Hebrew word to learn. Uh, you know, like the pop or soda, Coke. Uh, that's exactly how you pronounce that word power. That's being repeated over and over, Coke. And then if it's his power, it's Coco, his power, uh, Coke. But that's just over and over and over repeated here, uh, the power. And, and we've seen that emphasis before in Daniel, where a lot of Daniel's theology is surrounding who's really in control, Right? Um, so just noting that I think those are what is being emphasized in that section. And then you get to the very end, uh, so verse 26. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which is a reference to that 2300 days, which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Uh, we didn't really have something like that at the end of Daniel 7, where there's this statement of like, this is true. And so again, as this is unfolding, this is Gabriel explaining Daniel's dream or vision to him. And so this is him speaking to Daniel. This is true, so seal it up. Like, write it down. This is going to happen. And so I think that's going to help us as we get into how we would start to apply this passage. So if you think about it, if all of the animals and horns in this chapter are previous to us they've all this has already happened historically you know what what value do we have in this today it's like well we're not we wouldn't read this and be like so we're gonna see some great ruler come and conquer america and then he's gonna die and then there's gonna be four more like we we wouldn't interpret it that way like we're gonna see this happen because it has happened so what do we take from this so you can see on the back half of your sheet tried to write our theological points out here. 
And these are very similar to what we've already seen. God rules in the kingdom of men and understands the rise and fall of all earthly kings and kingdoms. Not to be lost on us is this is predictions of things hundreds of years in advance. And God knows it, and he tells it to Daniel, and Daniel doesn't know what's going on. So the mighty one of God, Gabriel, comes and tells Daniel what God knows. This is what will happen historically. And then God's knowledge of future events necessitates that prophecies contained in the scriptures are trustworthy and profitable to be written and studied. So you think about this, you know, and there's, if you look on the back of your sheet, there's a list of, of verses at the bottom we're going to get to. But I think there is a highlighting here of how true these things are. Uh, so thinking through application, man, that was a wonky animation. Figure that one out. Tell you what, by the end of this class, I'm going to really know how to make PowerPoints. That, that, that's the type of thing that I'll never forget right there. But anyway, so what would we start to do to apply this? How does it become practical to us? You can see I'm, I'm using the, the term predictive prophecy. So there is a vision of something that is going to happen, a prediction that comes true. So what does that do for us as believers thousands of years later? So predictive prophecy, uh, of course, thousands of years later in our first one, and the original recipients. So think about being a Jewish person in exile in Babylon. We know there's at least four, right? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. There's probably a bunch more. And imagine hearing this as a Jewish person. What would that have done for you? So you can see my, uh, well, you can't. Yeah, it's on the sheet. It's on the sheet. Uh, I think it would have been a comfort to them to know that God does have all of this figured out. The definitive truth of what God is predicting to happen in history, I think would have been a comfort to his people. A reminder that what God says will happen is going to happen. So I think that would have been an initial emphasis of Daniel. Like, this is good for us. Like, God knows what's happening. But now imagine you're a believer, like 200 years later. And you're in the midst of this, watching it happen. Like, Daniel's there in Daniel 5, watching the ram come and defeat Babylon. And then imagine you're a Jewish person watching Alexander the Great conquer. I mean, they aren't watching it, you know, and they don't have, you know, social media, so they're probably a little bit lagging from what we get today, but they would have realized that this is happening. Now imagine you're standing there in the temple on December 25th, Hanukkah, and 2,300 days from when Antiochus Epiphanes has started killing Jewish people, you've now got the sanctuary back. Maybe there's a really good reason why they celebrate this every year. Because they recognize that day as a fulfillment of prophecy. And we, you know, we kind of jokingly like, oh, Hanukkah, yeah, we believe in Christmas, right? Uh, but that's a huge day for a Jewish person. And if we understand Daniel 8, there's a really good reason why. Uh, that th this was predicted hundreds of years in advance. And to recognize how God is in control of that 
would be a great comfort. And then I added here boldness. Like what we have here is true. Like it's, it's incredible. Like if I could predict something 400 years in advance, it'd be wild. And we have that. 555 to 165. To the day, in fact, of when Hanukkah is celebrated. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who would disagree with that very literal rendering of Daniel 8. But I think we, we have some, you know, as if you were a Jewish person in the 1 to 400 era, I think you would have been very comforted and had some uh, nice boldness stirred in you about how true God's prophecies are. So that gets us to number two. As you recognize how true they are, it's a comfort to you. It's, it creates some boldness in, in his word. Uh, I think that causes us first to worship him, right? Maybe in awe a little bit of that, you know, I, I, I lose my keys like every day, right? You know, like I'll, I'll walk down to my car from my apartment, which is on the third floor, which becomes relevant in a moment, and I realize I don't have my keys. So then what do I have to do? I got to go back up, and then I try to find them. I don't even know where my keys are let alone being so omniscient and omnipotent to be the one that's in control of every nation and predict, and it's, it's, it's not a prediction to God because he knows it's going to happen, but to, to, to give a vision to Daniel of future events that have all literally happened. Like that should just blow our minds. And what happens is, you know, sometimes believers, we get a little jaded over time and, you know, think the Bible's just so common like to realize what we're actually looking at here like predictions 400 years in advance that boom they happened and and god is the one who's in control of all of that and when we recognize that prediction happening i think it causes us to you know as i say here have some awe respect some reverence i think it affects us or at least it should to to meditate on predicted prophecy that has come true should stir your affection for how powerful God is. I think that's a very valuable reason to study this. Uh, and then, but then the, the last one, which, you know, you can see the cross-references here, predictive prophecy and our search for truth. Uh, we do live in a society where we very easily go to other sources of, of information as truth. Uh, you know, social media, news, whatever you want. But we, we go searching for answers very easily. And something like this should almost rebuke us. Like, we believe that the scriptures are sufficient. Second Timothy 3.16, all of scripture is breathed out by God. It's from his mouth. And it's profitable for Correction, for reproof, for training and righteousness, that the man of God would be complete. And having that, we just like, I wonder what this guy on YouTube thinks, you know? Um, or I wonder what, you know, I, I don't want to name names because then, you know, we get into categories quickly. Um, we, we've got everything we need. You know, Second Peter uh, no prophecy of scripture is given by private interpretation. Like, Daniel didn't just come up with this. Holy men of God, Second Peter 1. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
Like th- this is from the Spirit of God that we have this. Titus 1, I think it's verse 2. Uh, God who cannot lie. Cannot lie. Second Peter 3. Actually, I, I would love for us to turn to that one. Second Peter 3, 14 through 18. Because I think it's going to hit on a, a really good note for us as we're studying difficult chapters in Daniel. So, uh, 2 Peter 3, 14 through 18. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider the long-suffering of our Lord is that, this long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in, in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scripture. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being wicked, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So what does he highlight here? He's like, yeah, there's a lot of difficult things in Scripture, <laughs> but like, this is the goodness of our God that we have this. And verse 18, so what? Continue to grow in your knowledge. Um, wrapping that all together, Daniel 8, I think, really emphasizes the truth of these prophecies. It's stamped at the end of that. This is true. And uh, I think the, the, the most direct application we can pull from this is that we actually have more than they had. We, we have more prophecy, if you want to use that word. Uh, da, uh, Peter uses it in 2 Peter 1. Uh, we, we have more revelation, more information, and all of it is exactly like that. It's true. And knowing that those things are true should affect us. We should want to know these things. Um, but, not to make us all feel super bad, look at Daniel in verse 27. Uh, he didn't get it right away. <laughs> um, it's interesting in verse 27, he says, no one understood this. I, I would love to know if he's including himself in that statement. He certainly doesn't feel great about it after he sees this and tries to grapple with it. Um, but so that's, that's Daniel 8, uh, predictions of what will happen in this era of time around from 555 when he received it up until the 150, 60 BC era. And what do we pull from that as we look at its prediction, its, its prophecies, it should have these types of effects on us. I think it should comfort us, give us boldness. It should help us worship to know uh, that the God of our Bible is really in control and knows these things. And then specifically as we focus on the truth side of that, we really should have a desire to know what God has told us. Uh, it is absolutely true. And so I think there's a little bit of a thrust here to enjoy what we have from God in Revelation. So hopefully you're not thoroughly vexed at the end of this. Um, 
So Daniel 9, I, you know, I think it's easier than Daniel 8. Um, so we'll find out next week. But uh, yeah, so that's Daniel 8. We'll go ahead and transition to our time of prayer. And uh, yeah, thank you guys. I'll see you next week.